Well, can I first of all say thank you very much for uh, inviting us here tonight. Um, it's a great pleasure and privilege to be with you. Thank you for letting Laura speak this morning and for letting me speak tonight. Uh, my role is the North of Scotland manager for Bethany Christian Trust, so I cover Dundee, Aberdeen and Inverness. And uh, my job is to try and develop services and manage the services that we already have in these areas. Another thing I want to say before I begin is to say a huge thank you to you as a church for the help you've given Bethany since uh, I came into post last September. Um, you did the, the winter care shelter in January with us for two weeks, which uh, we regarded as a great success, uh, along with five church teams and over four different venues in Dundee. We managed to house and then rehouse 23, 23 rough sleepers over the winter. So a huge thank you to all of you who helped with the cooking and uh, you were a great help to us with regard to the building. So thank you very much for that. I want to turn to the passage that we just had read to us so well in uh, Luke chapter 6 and to think a little bit about verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Just about four weeks ago, somebody phoned my office just as I was packing up to leave one night. Um, I got a phone call from a young boy who said to me that they, he'd just been to try and claim a, a crisis loan from the DSS and uh, they wouldn't give him one, so he was wondering if he'd get some food from us. Uh, he said that him and his mother were, they'd been to their beds hungry for three or four nights and they just wondered if he could give me, if I could give him some food. So being a cynical social worker, I thought he was probably exaggerating a little bit. So I told him to come down to the office and um, when I discovered where he was, uh, I thought I was fairly sure that would put him off and that that would uh, expose whether he was genuine or not. But an hour and a half later, after walking for an hour and a half, he turned up at the office. I felt a little bit guilty for testing him like that, but uh, he came in with his mother. And uh, within a few minutes, his mother broke down and uh, began to tell a story of how she'd been abandoned years ago by her son's father. And she'd worked all her life, but in the last few weeks, she'd gone to pick up her wages and her boss had gone off with her wages and they were destitute. So um, I was delighted to give them some food. But when they left, I thought what else I could do. I invited them to one of our projects. We were going to come along and get help with rent arrears and so on. But uh, I made a phone call to the, the church in the housing scheme they lived in. I had met the, the parish worker in that church once, so I phoned her. And she was just about to leave the country, so she couldn't do a lot. But I said to her, can I phone your minister? Can I, can I see what he can do to help this family? They're right on your doorstep. And she said to me, I wouldn't bother. She said, eh, we don't really get involved with these kind of people in our church. <clears throat> and I want to ask the question tonight, does the Bible give us any option but to get involved with these kind of people? People who are poor, people who are destitute, people who are broken. The Bible is full of passages and full of doctrine about, about the poor. But why is it in most churches that I go to certainly and that we come across that compassion for the poor is stuck on as some sort of add-on, it's some sort of committee and 
one or two cranky people go onto that committee and try and do some stuff. There's sometimes a collection very occasionally for an organization. Perhaps some of you here have been, parts, have been part of a deacon's court where the issue of compassion for the poor doesn't raise its head perhaps in years uh, and the agenda is swamped by buildings and money and all sorts of issues but the whole reason why the deacon's court was set up, the diaconate was for compassion for the poor and yet it never uh, gets raised. The Bible teaches that a love for the poor and compassion for the poor isn't just a, a bolt-on, it's not just an add-on, but it should be part of every church's DNA. Love for the poor is the very essence and heart of the gospel. I sometimes think that the church today has become a bit like Jonah sitting outside the city of Nineveh. He's slightly grudgingly done his job, he's preached the gospel to uh, the people of Nineveh, and he comes out with the city and he, he looks in this sprawling mass of wickedness and he's almost looking forward to God raining fire and brimstone from, from heaven. And he seems to be slightly disappointed when it doesn't come. I've been studying uh, Jeremiah recently and I think you've been studying it as a church as well. And I was just thinking about the passages in Jeremiah 28 and 29 when Nebuchadnezzar takes over Israel and he takes the children of Israel into captivity. And what do the children of Israel do in, in chapters 28 and 29? But they camp outside the city of Babylon. They don't want to go into the city because it's full of wickedness and pollution and violence and so on and false gods. And what does God say to them in Jeremiah 29? He says, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and begat sons and daughters. And take your wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters. That you, may, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you have peace. That's Jeremiah 29, verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah was speaking against false prophets who were saying to the children of Israel, this exile that we're on is going to be a very short exile. God is going to suddenly intervene and he's going to suddenly bring us back to our homeland. And Jeremiah was saying, no. He's saying your exile will be a 70-year exile. It will be a long exile. And far from camping outside the city, and far from being, being concerned about being polluted by the city, he says, I want you to go into the city. I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And I want you to put down roots, build houses, marry, and all the rest of it. I want you to, um, to seek the prosperity of that city. And that's what we are called to do as a church. We're not called to stand outside all the urban problems that are around us. We are, sta we are, we are called upon by God to take them head on. <clears throat> and this is very much the core of Christ's ministry as we see in this verse that we have in front of us. Sometimes people are almost unaware that the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount was a repeated in the Gospels. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is far more popular and is always the one that's preached on. And here we have the Sermon on the Plain, or as it's literally the Sermon on the Plateau, 
We believe it's the same sermon, but that Christ perhaps preached on a plateau up a mountain. And one of the reasons why many people believe that this sermon is not as popular as as Matthew's sermon is because when Christ talks about the poor in Matthew, he, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And talking about the poor in spirit, many of us, many Christians are able to allegorize that. They are able to to, uh, see it as a metaphor. But Luke says in this passage, blessed are you who are poor. Luke's statement is much starker. He doesn't modify it in any way. Luke says, blessed are you poor. Whereas Matthew says, blessed are the poor. And I've no doubt that the, pr- the primary meaning of this text is that Christ's words, Christ's message, Christ's ministry is to those who are spiritually impoverished. But I believe that the Bible also teaches that Christ came especially to those who are economically and socially poor. And you just need to look at his ministry right throughout the, the Gospels to see that. Christ had a special love for those who were economically and socially poor. It was a regular theme of, of his preaching. Now, I should have said at the start of this that uh, one caveat I always have to say is that uh, I spend most of my life listening and reading to reading Tim Keller. So um, I'd like to just acknowledge at the, the very start that my, many of my thoughts are based on his, his, his writings. But I believe if you really capture the gospel, um, it does three things for us. It's an agent in us knowing the poor, becoming the poor, and loving the poor. It's an agent in us, knowing the poor, becoming the poor, and loving the poor. So first of all, knowing the poor. How does the gospel help us to know the poor? When Jesus says in Luke, blessed are the poor, he is summarizing approximately 200 references to the poor in the Old Testament. At least 200 references to the poor in the Old Testament. And if we as Christians are going to allegorize away all these references to the poor both in the Old and New Testament we're going to have to rip up a huge amount of scripture the Bible tells us that poverty involves two things first of all it's a lack of something it's an economic condition it's a lack of all those things that the world values what, what does our society value what does our world value today well it values money and if you don't have money People aren't really very interested in you. What else does it value? It values fashion. It values talent. It values skills, good looks. It values influence and it values knowledge. But what if you're a kid who grows up in a a neighbourhood where you don't have any of these? What if you grow up in a home where your dad's in prison a lot, your mum's on drugs... Perhaps you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Maybe you grew up in a community where you don't learn to read and write very well. You're not taught relational skills. You're not taught how to delay your gratification in any way. What happens if you grow up in a neighbourhood where everyone around you is unemployed, claims benefits, drugs is all around you, and everybody hates school? Imagine growing up in a world where after the worst riots in peacetime Britain in 70 or, 70 or 80 years, you go to court and your mum and dad aren't even there to support you. This is the situation that uh, 
many people face as they grow up. See, poverty, poverty is more, about, more than just lacking money. It's, it's lacking all the things that the world values. And if you've got nothing that the world values, when you get to the age of 16, 17, 18, the world just wants to throw you away. You've not got an education. You've not got money. You've not got skills. The world wants nothing to do with you. I frequently, when I speak to people about poverty and the work that Bethany does, we quite often come up against this uh, brick wall where people say, well, people are poor because they've squandered what they've got. They've squandered it through drink and drugs. And that is absolutely true. That is the case for, for some people. But the majority of times where poverty is mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't actually talk about squandering your wealth. Proverbs 10 verse 15 says, The wealth of the wealthy is their fortified city, but the poverty of the poor is their destruction. It's not saying in that verse, it's not saying that the the sin of the poor is their destruction, but their poverty. It's the poverty that has destroyed them. Even at a a conservative estimate, 20 to 25% of the world's population is in grindingly deep poverty at the moment as we speak. Are they in poverty because of their own fault? Is it because of something they've done that they're, they're in deep poverty? Do the thousands of kids in Scotland who are growing up in grinding poverty, is it their fault? Is it their fault they're in that, in that situation? I thought I couldn't come to this church without uh, a short quote from the great man himself, Robert Murray McShane. But he uh, didn't hold back when some Christians said to him that uh, we shouldn't give to the poor because it was their own fault. This is what he says. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray tonight, pray, sorry, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the, in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under his feet, under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and the undeserving. That was Robert Murray McShane's response to Christians who said that we shouldn't give to the poor in case they abuse it. But poverty is also relational. As you heard this morning, Bethany's, one of Bethany's main focuses is that homelessness and poverty is very much about relationships. There's a very interesting verse in Proverbs 19, verse 4. It says, wealth, <coughs> this is the AV saying, wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his neighbor. Why, why does the poor have no neighbors? Well, it's because what we said before is that they have nothing of value, so people desert them. 
Why would you want to get to know the poor if they have nothing of value to offer? They have no skills, they have no money, they have no influence. And that's what a huge amount of the work that we do in Bethany with Passing the Baton and other projects is getting people alongside the poor and those who are homeless. Nearly 70% of people who turn up at the local council office in Scotland give us the main reason why they became homeless, a breakdown in relationships. So if we're going to respond to homelessness and poverty, a huge part of our work must be about relationship restoration and repair. And there's absolutely no way that any organisation like Bethany with 200 employees is ever going to be able to do that. And that is why it's so critical that we partner with people like yourself in the local church. Because as we train people up, as we train up volunteers, um, you can get alongside people in the community. So how do we respond to poverty? How do we respond? What does the Bible say? How How should we respond? Well, we should respond with mercy. We should respond with mercy. There's a very interesting verse in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. What was the great sin of Sodom? What was the great sin of Sodom? People always say it was immorality. But Ezekiel chapter 16 gives four sins of Sodom. Pride, gluttony, idleness, and neglect of the poor. These are the four main sins of Sodom. Pride, gluttony, idleness, and neglect of the poor. I think we would probably find these four sins pretty much in every church in the country. The people of Sodom didn't respond with mercy to the poor and God judged them. Think of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 6. says, this is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. One of the main reasons that Jerusalem was, was judged was because of oppression against the poor. And what happens when Christians respond with mercy? Well, when mercy expresses, we find that mercy expresses the love of Christ and makes openings for the gospel. We've just opened a new project in Aberdeen in the last three months and people are phoning us up, people are coming up to us and saying, why are you doing this? People are genuinely shocked by acts of radical generosity. Tim Keller says, when we pour ourselves out for the poor, that gets the world's notice. People quite often say to us, why do you run a night shelter? Why do you, why do you open up a church hall for these people who don't always smell just too great? And we tell them we do it because of the love of Christ, and that is a witness. Think of all the acts of mercy in Matthew 25. Feeding the hungry, quenching the thirsty, befriending the lonely, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and visiting the prisoner. All of these acts aren't seen by many people. But they're they're the things that God wants us to do and they're the things that we will be judged on ultimately. As I'm sure your minister has preached on over and over again, God's mercy is seen again and again in Old Testament legislation. Farmers weren't allowed to to reap reap out to the margins of their crops. They were to leave the edges for, for the poor, for the widow. Landowners had to voluntarily limit their profit making. They couldn't glean all their crops. Every third year, the tithes that normally went to the Levites were put into public storehouses to help the fatherless and the widow and the aliens. Every seventh year, all debts were cancelled and slaves were freed. And every 49 years, even all the land was returned to its original owner. God wanted the Israelites, the covenant community, to, to, to create a community of, fear, of fairness and justice and compassion. And God didn't want the poor just to receive handouts. 
That's the critical mistake the church has made down through the years. God didn't want the church, didn't, didn't want the poor just to receive handouts. He wanted real and lasting help. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 says <coughs> that, that, that there should be no poor among you. God said, if you follow the rules that I have laid down for compassion and for love for the poor, there should be no poor among you. And this is the philosophy we've got in Bethany. We don't want people just to get handouts. We don't, want, we, do, we don't want people just to get a bag of food. We want to provide real and lasting help. And that's why uh, in our projects in places like Aberdeen, uh, we have people from shelter, we have people from, uh, we have lawyers in, we have doctors in, so people get the real help they need to become more independent. And secondly, just under this first point, my, last, my second two points are a lot shorter, I promise. Poverty is not just a lack of what we have, but it's also... Um, it's also that when you're poor, even the little that you have is taken from you. Poor in the Bible can mean uh, needy, but it can also mean uh, oppressed. What does it mean to be poor? Well, Proverbs 13 verse 23 tells us that to be poor means to be a city without walls. A city without walls. What little the poor have is swept away by injustice. Lots of Christians don't like the word oppression. Partly because uh, it's been hijacked by some political philosophies. But the Bible spoke about oppression long before people like Marx and so on. And God is passionate about oppression. And he's very, very angry about it in many parts of the Bible. We can think of Leviticus 19, where the Bible speaks out against a judicial system that is weighted towards the wealthy. We can think of Exodus 22, where God speaks out against loans that have an excessive interest, a huge problem in our society. And Jeremiah 22 and James 5, where it talks about unjustly low wages. We live in a very complicated, broken world, and there are no easy solutions and no easy reasons why poverty is created and to glibly say that poverty is created because of somebody's own fault um, is very far from the truth sin is not just about individual sin and its consequences but it's also about injustice and oppression that many people face every day of their life and how do we how do we respond to oppression well we respond to oppression with justice and that's what we see coming through again and again in the bible we see this beautiful combination of mercy and justice. We need to respond to the economically poor with mercy, but respond to the socially excluded and the oppressed with justice. We, just, we can't just allegorize half the Bible. We can't just say that God is talking about the poor. When he talks about the poor, he's talking about the, the spiritually poor. We can't allegorize all the references in, in, in the Psalms to the needy. You can think of Psalms like Psalm 68 and 71 and 82 and so on. Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. The poor are mentioned 35 times in the Psalms. Christ was passionate about the poor. And the question tonight is, are we equally passionate about the poor? The building of Christ's kingdom is about so much more than just saving souls, important as that is. 
Christ fed people, he healed people, and he challenged injustice. This is what somebody has said. We are to embody Jesus Christ by doing what he did and continues to do through us. Declare, using both words and deeds, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is bringing in a kingdom of peace and righteousness, justice and peace. And the church needs to do this where Jesus did it, among the blind, the lame, the sick, the outcast and the poor. There was a couple of guys sitting in a pub in Glasgow once and they started talking about Thomas Guthrie, the famous free church minister. And one guy said to the other one, he says, I quite like Thomas Guthrie because he's one of these guys, he says, he practices more than he preaches. And I just wonder if we could ever get to the stage once again in Scotland where it could be said of the Christian church that we practice more than we preach. So that's my first point, and I'm just going to briefly mention the second two points. The, the gospel helps us to know the poor, but secondly, and very, very briefly, the gospel helps us to become the poor. In this passage, Christ looks at his disciples in verse 20, and he says, Blessed are you who are poor. Now, were all Christ's disciples poor? Matthew was a tax collector. He was very wealthy. Some of the disciples were fishermen. They were probably very wealthy. They weren't all poor. Christ was addressing them and saying, Blessed are you poor. <clears throat> and the gospel uh, is for those who are spiritually impoverished. Why does religion appeal so much to people who are wealthy and who are middle class? Well, because religion says, Be nice, be good, give to the poor, everything's fine. And how does a religious person respond? He says, Well, I can do that, I can be good. I can behave myself and I can give a, a few pounds to the poor. But what does the gospel say? Well, the gospel says the reverse. The gospel says that not one of us is good and that even our best deeds are like filthy rags. And there's only one hope, and that is to believe in the suffering servant, the king who became poor. You think of, think of Christ. He lived in a poor family. He had no home. He was despised. He was hated. He was cast off. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He had his last meal in a borrowed room. And he even had to get buried in a borrowed grave. He had nothing in this world. But it's only because of Christ that we can be saved. Christ was that suffering servant. What's the, what do you think of when you think of a servant? A servant is powerless, aren't they? They have no, they have no power. And Christ became powerless. He became a servant to save us from our sins. So the gospel is for the spiritually impoverished, but it's especially for the economically poor. And you see, that's why Christ had such a warm reception um, from the poor. The poor love the gospel. The Pharisees and the scribes, they hated Christ because they wanted a legal and an ethical gospel. Tim Keller, in one of his books, um, talks about um, a conversation he had with a woman once who asked him, why do so few, so few churches preach a gospel of grace? And Tim Keller didn't know quite how to respond. And eventually the woman said, because if it's all of grace, God could ask anything of us. And you see, to become spiritually poor, it doesn't mean... 
doesn't mean just saying that we can't bring anything to God. It also means that we owe God everything and that he can command us to do anything. And then just lastly, the gospel helps us to love the poor. There's a very good story about um, a woman who had a large legacy and she had no children to leave it to. And uh, the only person she had to leave it to was uh, her nephew. And uh, she was a bit concerned about this nephew. She wasn't quite sure what, was, what he was like. He was always very attentive to her. He was always very nice to her. Always looked after her. But she decided to test him one day. So she dressed up as a homeless person. She went to his house and she sat on his step. She was filthy. She was in rags. The door burst open and the nephew bursts out of the house, kicks her off the the steps, swears at her, phones the police. His actions revealed his heart and he never got the legacy. Proverbs 14 verse 31 says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for his maker. The way in which this church and the way in which we as individuals are to the poor displays in real terms, our love for our God and for our Saviour. What do you think of when you see somebody begging or you see somebody who is poor, somebody who's got nothing? Do you despise them? Or do you look at them and you think, that's me, that could be me. A person who's been transformed by grace doesn't pity the poor, he loves them. And just like that lady in our story, our attitude to the poor reveals our attitude to our Saviour. Keller says, A life poured out in doing justice and mercy for the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true gospel faith. Our attitude to the poor uh, is a sign of our own faith. So just to summarise what we've said tonight, does God want us to give away everything we have to the poor? No. He doesn't want us to become poor, but he wants us to be incredibly contented with what we have, and he wants us to be radically generous towards the poor. The poor meet Jesus. Those who know they are no different to the poor meet Jesus, and those who love the poor prove that they have met with Jesus. I just want to finish off by saying this, and again, this is quoted by Keller. There's a fantastic treatise on the poor by Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians uh, from America. He wrote it in 1732. And this is what he says in his treatise. This duty, giving to the poor, is absolutely commanded and much insisted on in the word of God. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more peremptory, urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? What does peremptory mean? It means leaving no opportunity for denial or refusal, decisive or final. The greatest, one of the greatest theologians that America has ever seen, a great Reformed theologian, says that giving to the poor is absolutely commanded and much insisted on in the word of God and that there is no other command in the Bible that is clearer or laid down in stronger terms. He's saying that giving to the poor and loving the poor can't be a committee It can't be an item on the deacon's court every two years. It must be 
part of the DNA of every church and every Christian. So the gospel helps us to, um, to love the poor, uh, to know the poor, uh, and to be the poor. So may God bless his word. Thanks for, thanks for listening. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.